I was sad to not be here last week. Uh, I was sad to be laid up in bed uh, with the world's worst Super Bowl ever. I'll say more about that in a little bit. Uh, you know I will. Um, and so we are uh, continuing in our sermon series this morning uh, called No Outsiders. And we've been looking at, so far, uh, a lot of scriptures from 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, as he lays out this theology of inclusion that comes with the Christian movement, that, that really the whole world is God's church and all of people are God's people. And, um, and today we're going to shift gears a little bit and turn our attention to the Gospel of Luke as we talk about what it means to be people who lead others into the way of Jesus. You're going to hear this term a lot today, disciples or discipleship. And maybe you've heard that term or haven't heard that term or you've wondered what that term really means because we use it a lot in church. It's one of those words that we use a lot and we kind of assume people know what it means. But essentially, to be a disciple is to be a Jesus follower. When you hear disciple, just hear Jesus follower, right? And when you hear discipleship, just think of leading people in the way of Jesus, leading people uh, in the path of Christ. Uh, that's what those words ultimately mean. So we're going to be talking about that a lot. And so when you hear those two words today, just know that that's what they mean. It means being a Jesus follower, leading people in the way of Jesus. And the Gospel of Luke tells this really interesting story of how Jesus chooses to disciple his first disciples, how he chooses to invite the first men to join him as his official uh, followers. There were lots of crowds who were sort of gathered around him in various towns early in his ministry and wanted to hear what he had to say and wanted to be, uh, you know, impacted by his works of healing. Uh, but these were the guys that he wanted to really teach how to walk in his path. And we're going to look at this story and, and dig into a few different aspects of it with this idea of no outsiders guiding us. So, um, Reagan, I'm going to ask you to read our scripture this morning. Okay. Um, so we'll be reading from Luke 5, starting in verse 1. One day Jesus was standing beside, you have to say it for me, Lake... Lake Gennesaret. Gennesaret. He's like, it's Lake Galilee. I'm like, or see the Galilee. I'm like, then just put that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when the crowd pressed in around him to hear God's word. Jesus saw two boats sitting by the lake... The fishermen had gone ashore and were washing their nets. Jesus boarded one of the boats, the one that belonged to Simon, then asked him to row out a little distance from the shore. Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he finished speaking to the crowds, he said to Simon, row out farther into the deep water and drop your nets for a catch. Simon replied, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but because you say so, I'll drop the nets. So they dropped the nets, and their catch was so huge that their nets were splitting. They signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They filled both boats so full that they were about to sink. When Simon Peter saw the catch, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Leave me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Peter and those with him were overcome with amazement because of the number of fish they caught. James and John, Zebedee's sons, were Simon's partners, and they were amazed too. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. As soon as they brought the boats to the shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. All right, let's say a word of prayer as we begin today. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this story. and We give you thanks for your word for us. God, we ask that you would make the story of, of fishing um, and the story of Peter coming to know who Jesus really was. Um, if you would allow this story to work on us this morning, um, 
allow Reagan and Maya's words not to be our words, but your words. And allow your words to change the way that we live our lives. And keep us walking humbly in your will. In your sons, let me pray. Amen. Okay. So uh, there's a couple things that, that Reagan and I want to sort of lift up in this story. Now, this is a story that a lot of us have heard many, many times, and maybe you haven't, and that's honestly great, because uh, I think sometimes we, we can read stories so often in the Bible or hear them preached so often that we think we know what they're about. Uh, one of my favorite professors in seminary, Old Testament professor, said, familiarity does not breed understanding, right? Just because you've heard something a whole lot of times doesn't mean that you get it, right? And that it certainly applies to the Bible. And this week, one of the things, when I was reading the scripture, specifically with this theme of no outsiders in the back of my mind, one thing that really struck me was uh, the location that Jesus chooses for his first disciple-making uh, process. You know, if you think about where the Son of God, where this uh, great Jewish Messiah is going to call his first disciples, Lake Gennesaret, right? Lake Ray Hubbard, Lake Grapevine... <laughs> It's not exactly the place that you would think of, right? Like, I grew up near Lake Grapevine. That place looks like Gatorade Lime, right? Like, that is not an attractive-looking place. I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and it, it's okay. They call it the sea. It's a big lake. You know, you can see across it, you know, when you're there. And, and I think about this place that they were. This wasn't a holy place that Jesus chose, he didn't go to a holy place to recruit holy men. And Reagan's going to talk about uh, the, the, the men themselves here in a second. But he doesn't choose the temple. He doesn't choose, choose a synagogue. He doesn't go to some place that's perfectly clean and pristine and righteous and holy. He goes to a lake. He goes to a fishing hole. He goes into a fishing boat that smells like fish. And he's with guys that are fishing with nets, and they're getting sweaty and dirty, and they got fish guts on them. I mean, are you getting a picture? Am I painting you a picture here? Can you smell where Jesus is recruiting his first disciples? And I mean, I, I want to bring us into that boat a little bit to make the point that discipleship, leading people in the way of Jesus, that can happen anywhere. You know, one of the gifts of the Christian faith that we can take for granted is that it's not bound to a location. This was radical for the Jewish faith. This was radical for a Jewish Messiah to be doing these things so far beyond the reaches of the temple or the synagogue. And we can sometimes make the mistake of thinking that discipleship, leading people in the way of Jesus, means bringing our friends to church. That's not really what it means, right? Now, I think the church does wonderful things. I think the church does a lot of good in making disciples. Otherwise, I would not be a pastor. I'd be a pretty bad pastor if I thought the church was useless, right? I'm not saying don't... <coughs> this is going to be a fun morning. I'm not saying don't bring your friends to church. I'm not saying don't bring your unchristian friends to church. Yes, bring your friends to church. Yes, bring your unchristian friends to church. Yes, the church does a lot of good things to make disciples. But if we make the mistake of thinking that discipleship only happens in the walls of the church then we are severely limiting the gospel, and we're severely limiting our role as disciple-makers. Did you know that one of your jobs in life is to be a disciple-maker, right? It's not your job to save everybody. I'll say more on that in a little bit. But all of us have this commission by Jesus to go out and make disciples. Go out and make disciples. That means that we're going to go to places that don't look like holy places, and guess what? God's Spirit's going to show up, and discipling is going to happen. You know, when I think about my own life and the places where I have been discipled or where I have been a part of a discipling process, so many of those instances were far outside the realm of the church, the institutional church. 
Sometimes it was on mission trips, you know, working, sweating, and you know, putting sheetrock up in a home in New Orleans in the middle of the summer. You know, I, now I, I kind of know what a fishing boat smells like. It kind of smells like a bunch of high school boys trying to hang sheetrock in New Orleans in the middle of July, right? And that, was a, that did as much for my discipling process as a young man as anything I learned in church. You know, I think about the fire pits that I've been around and the conversations I've had while eating barbecue and, and smelling, you know, wood fires in someone's backyard. That's discipling. You know, here's the cool thing about the locations that God works is if you go to the Sea of Galilee today, people come from around the world to see that place. That is a holy place for millions and millions of people around the world. Reagan and I have had the opportunity to go there. Let me tell you, Sea of Galilee is not that great. You know, it's not that pretty. It really isn't. It's okay. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good lake. Can you imagine if people came from around the world to do a pilgrimage to Lake Grapevine? It'd be insane. Can you imagine if you met somebody and they were in town from Japan? And why are you here? Well, I just wanted to go see Lake Ray Hubbard. I, I just, I got to see it. That's a holy place. What are you talking about? What's cool is that in the discipling process, when we have holy conversations, when we lead others or allow ourselves to be led into a deeper relationship with Christ, no matter where we are, God marks that spot as holy. So there are holy living rooms and holy kitchens and holy backyards and holy places throughout our world that we will never truly understand, but it's God that makes them holy because that discipling process happened there. God doesn't choose places that are already holy. God makes places holy that may not look like it on the surface. And so if you think that when you leave the church, then you're leaving that call to make disciples, and that only happens here, let me tell you, God may be asking you to make disciples in your living room, at the you know, foot of your child's bed. That's a holy place. Leading your children into discipleship, that's a holy place. Maybe it's in your, your workspace. I know some workspaces are different than others. Work cultures can be different, but maybe you can have a holy conversation at a water cooler. Maybe you can have a holy conversation over dinner with some friends. I love the fact that Jesus calls his disciples in a stinky fish boat because it reminds me that that, that process can happen anywhere, and I have to be aware and ready for God to move anywhere that I am, especially the places that I think are unworthy. All right, I think I've said enough about that. Yes. Reagan, why don't you take over for a sec? Let me drink some water. Um, so the next point, we're going to talk about how disciples can be anyone. I think what's interesting... With, um, I'm going to put you in the drum cage. That's what I'm going to do. I know. I'm sorry. Preach from there. I'm sorry. Um, so one thing that's interesting about uh, just the gospel and the way that Christ comes to us, you know, from the very beginning, um, you know, people were expecting this Messiah to come as this great, holy, majestic, powerful leader, um, and probably that they were going to go straight, you know, to Rome and probably talk to the authorities and everything, um, but he doesn't. We know that the story is that Christ came as a baby uh, in a manger, um, again, a stinky place, <laughs> and, and so everything is just kind of flipped on its head from the very, very beginning, and so I'm sure people are wondering, who is Jesus? Gonna, maybe as Jesus grows, now he's going to go to the authorities. He's going to go to the high, powerful people. Those are the people, because he probably wants to work fast, right? Like, let's get some things done. So when he goes to the disciples, um, they were not the leaders. They were not the priests. They did not have any power. They didn't have wealth. They didn't have anything that could really make a fast change, I guess, a big impact. 
And I loved that um, because they were not qualified to be, to be the people that started this movement. They weren't, they weren't qualified to be the bearers of the gospel, really. But yet Jesus goes to the people. He looks at, he probably had tons of options. He said, no, I'm going to go ask fishermen, kind of the lowliest, almost the lowliest people. We talked about who, who was below them. Like pig farmers. Pig farmers would be yeah. like. These are manual laborers. These are blue collar guys. Yes. Yeah, so blue collar, undereducated young men, um, you know, that were sent out. They didn't really, they were kind of loners, you know. I mean, fishing was you're out on a boat. You didn't really engage with a lot of people. So again, you didn't have the sphere of influence really. Like no one really knew who you were. You were a nobody. And yet um, Christ chooses them. And so I love that um, really what this story, what this scene sets up is that, yes, God can make disciples anywhere, but God is looking for anyone, like anyone, that there's no sense of like resume, there's no sense of you have to, um, you know, check off this list to be powerful enough, because I think looking at like right now in times, if I want to make change, I'm going to call someone that has a lot of friends, has a high job, that probably has a lot of money, because I want to get things done fast. I need someone that has that authority, that's well-respected, that has a name that's recognized. Um, And so I love that God really is looking for people that just want to be discipled. And so I think what's really interesting for me is that um, he's not looking for the best people. He's just simply looking for people that are hungry, that are eager, that are teachable, that are ready. And I think those people make kind of the, the best disciples. I think that's in the like political world, you know, I think, or not even the political world, but we love like things that are a grassroots kind of uprising because it's just like the everyday person. Like we can relate to that. And so I think I find myself in this story realizing Christ can call on someone like me um, that doesn't have a lot of authority or a lot of power, but can still use it. And so for me, it's really comforting. And so I think for us, we have to realize, uh, never discount yourself. Never feel like I'm not worthy enough. I'm not good enough. Um, Especially like if you've done some past things, maybe like that still does not disqualify you. Um, And also for me, which can be really humbling, is uh, that I can never discount someone else and say, well, they're not worthy enough. They don't have the capabilities. They don't have the abilities. Like, why would God choose them? And I think for me, that's a good reminder for me never to make up my mind who I think is going to be a good disciple. Because yeah. I feel like I'm surprised a lot by the people. I'm like, oh, man, they are kicking butt. Yeah. <laughs> no, one of the, my favorite things that Stan will say when he preaches this, this uh, text, and I imagine he said it this morning. I wasn't able to hear it at 8.15. But uh, Stan will say, it's our job to catch them, and it's God's job to clean them. Right? Talking about fishing for people, right? It's our job to catch him, it's God's job to clean him. And what he means by that is sort of what Reagan was just saying is, you know, a lot of times we're, we're cool with catching all people, but what we really want to do is disciple them in our image. And we're really not trying to disciple them in, in God's image. 
or, or we think we know what God's image for them looks like, right? And the bottom line is none of us have an inside view of anybody's soul or heart condition. None of us know who it is that God created anybody to be. Um, that's God's role. That's God's job. job God, God's job is to have that spirit fill people and lead them in a, in a direction of healing and, and lead them in a direction of righteousness. And I think a lot of times we're all about making disciples. We just forget who we're making disciples for, mm. right? We want to have control over that cleaning process. Yes. And, uh, and, and I love the fact that Jesus calls these men that are flawed when he calls them. They continue to be flawed when he leaves them. Oh, you they're know? terrible. You know, I mean, look at, <laughs> look at Peter, who's sort of the central, central person in this story. I mean, Peter will constantly jockey for position with the disciples. He's going to be the one that denies Jesus three times after the crucifixion or when he's taken captive. Um, he's going to be the one that, that, that doubts constantly, and, and yet he's he's still loved and he's still pursued by Jesus and he's still discipled by Jesus. And uh, I think a lot of us have a hard time realizing that uh, the disciple-making process involves broken people and we don't get to decide what parts are broken and what parts need fixing. That's, that's God's job and that's God's work. Yeah? Amen? Is that hard for you too? That's hard for me. I know how everybody in my life is broken. I know exactly what they need to, need to do to fix themselves, right? Anybody else feel that We're gonna way? We're going to start naming them. Ever? We've got yeah, your no, names no, up on no, the screen. No, 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 no. no. Um, you said you had a Patriots so, analogy yeah, I, for this. I, I, so was gonna, go. I was hoping you were going to gloss over that and not let me do <laughs> Just this. Go. So I have a confession to make. I didn't watch the dumbest Super Bowl ever uh, this past week. Not even one minute. I was laid up in bed sick, had nothing to do, and I watched an old season of Top Chef instead of watching the Super Bowl. That's how much I was protesting the Super Bowl. And I made the right decision because the final score was like two points to one point or something ridiculous. I've watched every Super Bowl since I was like a baby. Um, and, and, and the reason is because I hate the Patriots. Like, I, 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 as Psalm 139 says, I hate them with perfect hatred, right? I, I, I know what David is talking about when he says that. And, um, and so uh, I say that so that now you can hear me say this. Um, I think that God disciples in a similar way that the Patriots build a football team, and it tastes like vinegar saying that. Um, because as much as I can't stand the Patriots, they are an incredibly good football team, right? They, they go to the Super Bowl Every season, they go twice a year. They, they that's how, that's a year. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They win all of the time. And, I mean, Bill Belichick is an incredible coach. And Tom Brady. Let it out. He's a it. good quarterback. There you go. He's almost as good as Tony Romo. Oh. And, um, yeah. They're totally the same. <laughs> yep. How many but rings the big does Tony re- have? The big, you're done. Okay. So, mute her mic. All right. I don't care if I'm coughing. You're done. Um, the reason I think that they're so good is when you watch them play, every year they go to the Super Bowl, and their roster can look totally different year to year. And so much of their roster is guys that you go, who? Who is that? I've never heard of these people before. They don't always get the big all-star, uh, big, huge, you know, players. They, they get the right players. And one thing Bill Belichick is really good at is he knows his system, and he knows the kind of guys that he needs. And, and, and when Reagan's talking about how God doesn't choose the most qualified, you know, the Cowboys – fall in the pitfall of going out and getting the most attractive, shiny guy that costs a million bajillion dollars, and we got nobody else, right? Uh, and then they don't perform like And Tony. then they, d- yeah, thank you. Okay. Again. Um, <laughs> I think that God builds his kingdom not around the best, most qualified people. 
In fact, in my experience, the people who are doing the biggest work for God's kingdom are people that you would never expect, and they might be the people that, that don't have any sort of social status or standing, that nobody notices, and yet they are, they are absolutely enormous hammers for building the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and that gives me comfort. Uh, because that tells me that God operates on a totally different wavelength than the rest of our world. And God doesn't need the people that have the biggest wallets or the, or the most status or whatever. And God can use high-status people. God uses Paul, who's a Pharisee, and he's a leader. And God ends up having him help lead the church. But God also uses fishermen. And God also uses tax collectors. And God uses all these different people that you would never expect um, but for God, they're the right people because they are hungry. Like Reagan said, they want to be discipled. And that's the last time I'll ever say anything nice about the Patriots from a pulpit ever. All right. Yes, you can applaud that <laughs> statement right there. All right. Reagan, back to you. Okay. Uh, so this is just a, a short little thing. Um, it, when you're reading the Bible and this story uh, of Peter and, and some other disciples being called, um, it is always really, really important to read what's before and, and what's after. And often, not every single time, I think there's, there can be this kind of thread that is the same kind of ultimate theme or story that's coming out of it. And so, uh, in, in this particular instance, right before this story, um, Jesus is uh, casting out demons. He heals Peter's uh, mother-in-law. And then right after, he's, Jesus is healing leper and, um, lepers and then a paralyzed man. And so... And if you're going to have this big circle and relate all the stories, we kind of started thinking, or Scott started thinking about, is this story of Peter really about the way that Peter is healed? Um, and so I think it's really, really important to kind of look before and after and see how do these stories connect? What is God really saying in this like bigger, bigger story, not just this one random story? Yeah, so... That, that's a good point, Reagan, for whenever we study scripture to make sure we look at what's before and after. And, and like you said, the, the healing stories before and after, you know, it, it made me think this week, what if the story of disciple making, it's still a story of disciple making, but what if it's also a story of Peter's healing himself, right? Of Peter being healed. If the demons are being cast out and his mother-in-law is being healed and the leper's being healed and the paralyzed man's being healed. What if Peter's being healed in this? What if we look at the story through this lens of this is Peter's healing story? Now, now here's what's interesting is that when the story begins, when we read that scripture, we notice that Peter calls Jesus master. Um, and he's called Simon. Don't get lost in the name. Simon is Peter. Simon Peter, right? Um, Jesus is he's teaching this crowd. He notices some boats. He sits in one of Peter's boats. He's teaching the crowd from the boat. And then he tells Simon Peter, Let, let's take this out and fish. And, and Simon Peter calls him master, which is a pretty high, t uh, you know, that's a high praise for a person, right? It, it's clear that, that Simon Peter saw Jesus as clearly a great teacher, uh, a faith healer, he just witnessed his mother-in-law being healed, which we can assume he was happy about that, right? Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, he, he probably believes that Jesus is some sort of prophet, right? That it, he has this spiritual ability to heal people, and he's a great teacher. He's probably this prophet, so he calls him master. And that's a really high praise, but it's not as high a praise as when he pulls in these fish, and he falls on his knees, and he calls Jesus what? He calls him Lord, now, again, some of these terms we use so much in the church that we forget that they have a lot of meaning. And there's a big difference between calling someone master and calling them Lord in the Jewish faith because the Lord is who? God, right? God is the Lord. So to, to call Jesus kurios, Lord, that 
is a, a, a title way beyond master. That is Peter beginning to connect that this guy is like the savior, the Messiah. This is more than a prophet, more than a teacher, more than a healer. This Jesus is something special, right? So what is it about the fish that caused this huge shift in Jesus? He saw his mother-in-law get healed, but a good fishing trip did it for Peter, right? Like, is, the, is it the fish? You just needed to see some fish, Peter? I mean, maybe he just really loves being a fisherman, you know? I don't think that's what it's about. I like to, when I read these stories, especially narrative stories like this, <coughs> I like to get inside the head of the people that we're, we're reading about. I try to understand who is Peter. You know, Peter's this young guy. And we know later on from his stories in the gospel that Peter's kind of cocky. You know, he's pretty ambitious. He wants to be Jesus' right-hand man. And he's kind of a know-it-all, you know. And, and he's a fisherman. And, and he's a good fisherman, too. I think Peter probably thinks he's the best fisherman on the lake, right? And, and Peter's such a good fisherman that he knows that you go out and you fish at night. Because on the, on the Sea of Galilee, when you fish at night, the fish, because the sun is down, the fish are going to swim closer to the surface. It's going to be a lot easier to catch fish. And, you know, I bet Peter's been fishing out there long enough that he has his fa favorite fishing hole on Lake Gennesaret. Don't you think he's got his favorite fishing hole on, on the lake? And so he's going out to his favorite fishing spot, at night, and he's going to fish there all night long, and he's going to bring in buckets and buckets and buckets of fish, because that's what he does, because he's Peter, and he knows how to fish. And he goes out there, and he drags these nets, and these are big, heavy nets, and he's dragging them, and he drags them over and over and over again, and he gets nothing, and nothing, and nothing, and he's working himself to death trying to get these fish, because remember, he's a fisherman for, for a livelihood. He's got a big family that depends on him being good at this, right? And, and so he's fishing over and over all night long, nothing, nothing, nothing. And so he's frustrated. He's tired. The sun's coming up. He knows, well, if we haven't caught fish by now, I'm not going to catch anything now because the fish are going to move even further away. And so, but you know what? Peter is good at what he does. He's a good fisherman, so he pulls his boat in and he cleans his nets. The scripture says they're cleaning their nets. He's exhausted from not catching any fish all night, but he's still cleaning his nets because, darn it, Peter is a good fisherman and he knows what to do, right? And then comes this guy named Jesus. And, he, you know, he saw him heal his mother-in-law, and, and that was pretty cool. And he's clearly a great teacher. But what does he know about fishing? What does he know that I don't know about fishing? I, I'm a fisherman. He's a faith healer and a teacher. He's never probably even been on a lake before in his life. I heard he was raised by a carpenter. What the heck does he know about fishing, right? He says, let's go out and fish. And he's probably thinking, oh, my gosh. I mean, he healed my mother-in-law, so I probably need to. I probably should. Yes, master. Yes, we will go fish. Okay. Oh, over there in the worst spot on the lake. That's a great idea. Great idea. We'll go right there. It's noon, it's super hot. Nah, the fish will they'll just come falling into the boat, I'm sure. He gets his nets that he just cleaned, right? Gets them back in the boat, takes them out. I'm going to take this yokel, you know, from up Nazareth. I'm going to show him how to fish. Oh, great, a little fishing trip. Middle of the day, this is fun. All right, Peter, right here, lay down your nets. Right here. Oh, right here where no one's caught a fish in 50 years? Sure, I'll put my fishing net out right there. Drops the fish in net. This is never going to work. I can't believe I'm out here with this guy. And then pounds of fish. And then pounds and pounds and pounds of fish. And they're hauling it in. And it's capsizing the boat. And why is this a healing story for Peter? 
Because I think in this moment of fishing, which we can laugh at and we can think is kind of silly and whatever, this is Peter's life. He has built his life around fishing, and Jesus is confronting his sinful nature around fishing. Here's the first cool thing. Jesus knows exactly where we are and how we understand things. Peter didn't need to see his mother-in-law get healed. He may not have even liked her that much. Peter knew fishing. Jesus confronts his sin of being what? Egotistical, being a know-it-all, being totally self-reliant. What does this yokel know about fishing that I don't know? Peter is confronted with his sins by Jesus. And how does Jesus confront his sins? With condemnation? Does he stand up in the boat and go, you're so stinking silly? I'm going to use family-friendly language. I can't believe you didn't, you doubted me. Oh my, look at all this fish. Na 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 boo boo. I was right, you were wrong, right? No, Jesus doesn't do that. First of all, he offers him grace, gives him a lot of fish. That's going to be a lot of money at the market for his family. And then he offers him this healing gift of humility. I wonder if Peter's life was changed because in that moment of fishing, he realized that he doesn't know everything. And that maybe there's someone outside of him that has a better idea of what he should be doing than he does. And in fact, maybe he ought to give his life to something bigger than being the best fisherman on Lake Gennesaret. I think that, that changed the way I understand the story. And I think it changes the way that we can approach discipleship when we realize that discipling and stories of healing go hand in hand. And I want Reagan to say a word about that. Okay. So, obviously this story is, is about disciple making. This is, what, this is what is happening, is that, that Christ is calling his first disciples. And uh, I know we talk a lot about our mission statement here at Lover's Lane is loving all people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But also... The United Methodist Church has, uh, you know, a mission statement too, which is uh, making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And so we, all of us, have that responsibility. As Scott said earlier, like we all have this call. Jesus just didn't tell his disciples to go make disciples. He was saying, all of us, all of you need to go make disciples. And so Peter's story, I think is a reminder of a disciple making doesn't have to be, um, yes, it is. it can be very daunting, but it doesn't have to be this really hard task or um, this thing that you need, you know, you've got to make this big presentation and have a PowerPoint and have all, you know, these gadgets and fireworks. Please and- do not try to disciple people with PowerPoints. <laughs> that's, a, that's a surefire way not to make a disciple. Um, hey, hey, John, come sit down. i got a PowerPoint i got a you. real short... Yeah. It's got clip art. It's awesome. It's great. Um, comic stands. Um, that Peter, the way that he is able to make disciples, I imagine, is, is telling his story. That he gets to tell this really personal story of how Jesus changed his life. And I think it's interesting. We talked about how, you know, he had, he, yes, he had just witnessed his mother-in-law get healed. And again, maybe he just didn't like her. And that's why it didn't. I, I don't, that's not in the Bible. So don't quote maybe me Maybe he didn't like her. I don't I'm know. sure she was lovely. Um, but so you would think, you would think that that might have changed him at that moment. You would think that that would have moved him a lot. But it wasn't quite personal enough. It wasn't fully his story. And so I think there's at times we can get frustrated with people that like, why don't you just believe? Like, why don't you just get it? And until you have that, 
that thing that you can really grab hold of that it really touched your heart, that it really changed your life, that you saw something that, yeah, it can be really hard at times to believe, to fully give yourself over to Christ Jesus because it just hasn't got to that part of your heart that really needs to kind of be touched and formed and changed. And so I think Peter reminds us until you um, really can have that story, um, sometimes it can be it can be hard to really proclaim, and it can be hard to make other disciples when you maybe don't have something that you know something personal. Like um, I know I've heard from people when they try to get me um, not recent in recent times, but when they're like try to get me to go to their church, I'm like, well, well, tell me about it, and or what does it do for you? And they're like. Well, I mean, it's just really great. And I'm like, okay, but tell me more. <laughs> like, and so I think there's something to be said about um, just a story being, I guess, yours. I don't know if you can say more about yeah. that. I think a lot of times, especially in the Methodist church, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about Methodist brethren right now, right? Maybe you're not Methodist in the room and evangelism comes really easy. Methodists are really bad at evangelism. Like, you know, that's just sort of our thing. You know, we, we're like, oh, that's what the Baptists do. The Baptists evangelize. You know, we, we bring the potluck. That's what we're in charge of. Um, but evangelism can sound scary, like Reagan said. Because I think sometimes we think that means going out and standing on a street corner and just like saying, Jesus loves you. And like, a lot of us don't want to do that. And that's fine. Um, or maybe you think it means that you got to be a theologian, right? That, you, that when someone says, okay, but then what about this, and what about this, and what about this, that you have to have all these answers theologically for people, and, and that is also scary, especially if you're still figuring out your faith for yourself. I love this story this week because it reminds me that disciple-making really ultimately is about sharing our stories of healing. Um, that, number one, I, it's not my job to save everybody in the world, Right? And I want that, that needs to be said for everybody in the room. It's not your job to save everybody around you. It's not, job to, it's not your job to save every single person in your family. It's not your job to save every single person in your office. It's not your job to bring everybody in your life to Jesus Christ, right? That, that, that's a, God is bigger than you, and God has other avenues into the lives of the people that you love than just you. Um, but it is our job to be good stewards of our story. It is our job to be attuned to when we're in those places that seem unexpected, and when we're around people that we might not expect to hear this from, and they begin to say things that we go, wow, that, they sound like that's like my story. Um, and, and you hear in them a yearning for healing. And you have that opportunity. You see that opening and you say, well, you know what? Your story sounds a lot like my story. Can I tell you about, about how I was given healing in that season of my life? And then you begin to introduce them to who Jesus has been for you. That speaks volumes. That does a whole lot more than you being theologically perfect. I can promise you that. I think about for my own life, my own stories of healing. When I was a teenager, I'd grown up my whole childhood with uh, two cousins who were just older and just younger than me. And uh, they lived a mile down the road. And they were like my family. They were like my brother and sister. And then I turned 13, right? It's an insignificant age, right? And uh, I, I turned 13 and they moved two states away to Mississippi. Um, my aunt was like my second mom, gone. And my identity, who I was, and everything I knew about my life was wrapped up in being their cousin and, and being the part of that family, and all of a sudden that was gone. And that was this, and, and 13 is a, is a difficult time because you're figuring out who you are and you're forming your identity. And it's in that moment that the church stepped in and that Jesus stepped in and helped me, number one, find a new family that I could call home. 
And number two, help me understand who I was, not in other people, but in Christ. Now, that's just one of my healing stories. I mean, I could go into so many dozens, and in this room, I'm sure we've got dozens and dozens and dozens of healing stories. And maybe part of your work this week is to go back into those seasons of life where you know that you experienced healing and being able to articulate how Jesus was a part of that. Maybe that's, maybe that's something that, that you need to do, that we need to do this week. But, but I hope that when we leave church today that we can understand evangelism maybe in a new way. Because all of us are called to be evangelists. All of us are called to be disciple makers. And that doesn't mean we're all called to stand on street corners. That doesn't mean that we're all called to be master theologians. We are all called to share the story of how Jesus healed us, even if it was in a stinky fish boat on Lake Gennesaret. Y'all with me? Let's pray. That's enough I got to say. I'm going to start coughing pretty soon. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. (coughs) God, we give you thanks for the gift of your healing touch. God, as we sit here, I want to offer just a a moment of stillness and of silence for, for everyone in the room to be able to think back on those moments when we desperately needed something. Maybe it was in our childhood when we were a teenager or in college, or when we were young adults. Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was in our middle age. Maybe it was last year. I want us to take a moment and just, in our hearts, be able to quietly say thank you for how you met us in that moment. And maybe we didn't see it at the time. In fact, at the time, we may have been furious with you or we may not have even known who you were. But God, hindsight's 2020. And we just ask that you could help us to see your activity in our lives. Those healing graces that you offered us in the moments we needed them the most. God, the reality is that Broken and wounded people are everywhere. Every single person in this world is broken and wounded in so many ways. And you don't walk this earth the way that you did in the Gospels. You walk this earth through us, your hands and feet. We are your body. And so God, when we encounter people in our homes, in our communities, in the places in which we live and spend our time. When we notice that someone is hurting or is broken in a way that we understand uniquely because it's part of our story too, God, would you give us the courage to say something, to listen, to hear the pains that are on their hearts, then to offer the healing balm that simply says, you're not alone been there too. Let me tell you my story. God, help all of us to be disciple makers. Maybe we're not loud and boisterous. Maybe we don't think we're any good at evangelism, but God, make us storytellers. Make us your hands and feet of healing in the world around us. We give you thanks for this morning. 
we give you thanks for this worship. We give you thanks for your spirit and the ways in which you heal us day after day. All this we pray in the name of your son, who is the great healer, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.